0: I think it's important for people to think about purpose in life, not just purpose in career. If you step back and think about your career as part of a portfolio of your day to day activities, it doesn't put so much pressure on your career having purpose. Because it may be that your career is a vehicle that allows you to give purpose in other parts, find purpose in other parts of your life. It may be that your career gives you the capacity to help your father, who is an air conditioner repairman, this is a true story that a friend of mine um, lived, to have that father not be an air conditioner repairman in the Rio Grande Valley, which has him in hot crawl spaces in his 40s and 50s and puts him at real risk. He, because he did a career that generated large surplus for him, was able to take some of that surplus and take his father out of those crawl spaces and put him in a wonderful house in Arizona. Boy, that's real purpose now, isn't it, Mm -hmm. right?
1: Welcome to the Driving Force Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Chase Rosa, a former private equity analyst, turned performance coach to founder CEOs, and avid Brazilian jiu-jitsu and obstacle course race athlete. This podcast will feature conversations with uniquely driven and authentic individuals across sports, business, and wellness who continue to achieve great things in their respective fields. By presenting their stories, uncensored and uncut, I hope to inspire you to take a step back, look within, and evaluate your path and journey. Today's guest is Luis Ubinas. Luis is someone who's been driven by a strong sense of responsibility from an early age. He grew up in the projects of the South Bronx in the 1970s, arguably the most dangerous neighborhood in the United States at the time. With the amazing support of others, including individuals and the government, Luis was not only, not, not only able to survive that upbringing, but also thrive in the years that follow. After graduating from Harvard in 1985, Luis went on to work at McKinsey and eventually become a senior partner, where he developed and led the West Coast media and, and, and entertainment practice. Following McKinsey, he became president of the Ford Foundation for six years and led a major restructuring of the organization during the Great Recession. Now, he's a board member of numerous, numerous large corporations, including Electronic Arts, Boston Private, and Mercer. Even with all of this professional success, Luis has always made it a point to look back on his past and make sure that others can have the same opportunities he has had. In this interview, we discussed Luis's upbringing in the South Bronx, how that upbringing shaped him, his work as, pre- as president of the Ford Foundation, and the impact art and technology can have in driving social change. And so without further ado, my interview with Luis Ubinas. How have you been adjusting to, I guess, life in the, the current situation that we're all in right now? No,
0: you know, it's, it's a strange situation. I am in one place for the longest time I have ever been in since I was in college. So it has been 35 years at least since I've been in one place this long. I'm, I'm up in my house in Vermont, wow. not even in New York City. Um, oh, okay. I've uh, you know, been walking country roads, dirt roads, and hiking trails, but I haven't um, ever slept in the same bed this many days in a row in my, in my adult life.
1: Wow, and how many, how many days has that been?
0: It's been uh, since May 12th. Oh, brother March twelfth.
1: Okay. Oh, wow. It's been,
0: so it's been since March twelfth, uh, since I uh, since I ventured out of uh, out of this one geography. It's and it's it's a record for me. <laughs>
1: yeah, uh, I can't must...
0: say I can't say it's a good thing.
1: Right. Yeah. He must. It must have been traveling a lot during. Uh, I guess your whole entire professional career. Then.
0: Yeah, my life has always been traveling. You know, I traveled from McKinsey every single week I traveled for Ford, um, at least once a month all over the world for both. And, um, and then what I've been doing since in my nonprofit and for-profit work has me all over the country and even all over the hemisphere.
1: Right. I would think you're probably, even though I guess stuck in one place for more than you'd like, probably pretty grateful to be in an area where you can venture outside and go on hiking trails. Yeah. Um, and not be around too many people.
0: No, it's it's clearly a blessing. I keep reminding everyone that um, you know, in this day and age, given everything that's going on, we've got to remember all our blessings because to be able to be employed but work from home, to be able to socially distance but to be able to go to a public park, um, to be able to be unemployed but receive respectable unemployment benefits. All of those things are privileges that a lot of places can't imagine.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. Gratitude and appreciation are definitely two things that are very, I think very important um, in today's time for sure. And do you think that for you, I guess, given the environment in which you grew up in that you, I guess more maybe easily appreciate um, and are more grateful for the things you have now,
0: you know, I, I often uh, think that the environment I grew up in was really a blessing, as hard as it was. And trust me, I'm not diminishing its difficulty. And I hope no one ever has to have the kind of upbringing I had. But um, I have to tell you that uh, it leaves you a very grateful person when you um, can look back and think, "You know, goodness gracious, uh, there's food in front of me and shelter. Um, I have not just everything I, I um, need, but everything I want. Um, it comes with an extra layer of appreciation when you've traveled the distance I've traveled. And I, I know a lot of people who had rough upbringings in different parts of the country and different parts of the world um, who uh, just look back on it and say, you know, I can wake up in the morning with a different kind of joy in my life because I know what I've overcome.
1: Right. And it was the South Bronx. Is that right where you grew up?
0: Yeah, I grew up in the South Bronx back in the 1960s and 1970s. It was uh, you know, not an ideal place to grow up, but I had a really good, loving family. And um, we took care of each other back then, uh, and we take care of each other now. In some ways, we take care of each other now even more.
1: Mm-hmm. And how do you think maybe generally that upbringing has shaped you and maybe conversely, how have you been able to not let that experience kind of define you?
0: You know, I think, um, that everyone takes a lot out of how they're raised. I think a lot of people step back and, and focus on what's negative about where they grew up, focus on what's negative about their family condition, their economic situation. What I try to think about and what I try to share when I talk to audiences, when I talk to young people at schools and other places, is that uh, they have to find the strength that they're building from their situation, that maybe they work a little bit harder, that maybe they're a little bit more thankful for when they do have things, that, that maybe they can appreciate the people who help them a little more than others do, and so that those people help them a little more than they would normally. Um, But growing up in a difficult situation, in a challenging situation, even one that's catastrophic, like the South Bronx back in those days, gives you things. And it's in finding those things it gives you um, that you can actually use the situation you're growing up in to make you a stronger person and a better
1: person. Right. And how do you, how does one know, I guess, when they've found, <clears throat> found those things that can kind of bring, bring them that strength that they need?
0: No, I, I think they're common themes. When you speak to people like I do who are, have found themselves as successful adults but come from challenging backgrounds, and, and many of us who come from immigrant families, many of us who come from um, uh, circumstances that aren't our ideal share that background, and when you speak to them, The themes are around understanding the value of work. Why do I work so hard? It's not intangible. So I can move from point A to point B. So I can be transformative in my life and transformative in the lives of the people I care about and love, my family, and so on. Hard work. I think the second thing that a lot of us share is a sense of deep appreciation. A sense that... um, we're blessed. We're blessed with the ability to have been able to get the educations we got, blessed with the early career opportunities, blessed with mentors. And I think that sense of appreciation yields a desire on the part of others to really think about um, how they can be more helpful to you and think about how they can collaborate with you. Because you don't take for granted um, The possibility that you can do things with others, do things that most people don't ever get to do in some cases. So that sense of appreciation. Uh, Third, I think there's a deep sense of empathy. You know, when I Mm -hmm. make a business decision, when I make a decision at one of the nonprofits I work with, when I provide guidance, uh, when I provide leadership, I always think about how my decisions will affect the people who are least well off in the company, in the nonprofit, the people we serve, the people who are our customers, public or private, uh, I always step back and think, if you're the person at the cash register, how does this affect you? If you're the person with no savings, how does this affect you? Because that was the person I was the entire time I grew up, Um, uh, the person who's at the edge. and. Um, If we all spent a lot of time or even some time thinking about the well-being of the person at the edge, Mm -hmm. the well-being of the person who's least well off in our ecosystem, least well off in our family, least well off in our neighborhood, least well off in our community, our church, our synagogue, our place of, of employment. If we spent a little time thinking about those people, there'd be fewer of those people. Those people would eventually climb and rise and have opportunities that they wouldn't otherwise have in our society would be better off because of it. I think that understanding is one of the central things that I've gotten, that I benefited from, from having grown up the way I did.
1: Interesting. Okay. And what were, I guess, the pillars of support that allowed for you to thrive as you made your way out of that environment and out of the South Bronx and also keep you from slipping into maybe that lawlessness many, many of your peers have, may have gone into?
0: You know, so first of all, I would say that the Latino community has very, very low levels of lawlessness. In fact, many of the safest cities in America are cities with very high Latino um, populations. Cities like San Jose, for example, one of the safest places in the United States, um, in city after city across the United States, um, high proportions of Latino and in particular immigrant populations yields low level of criminality. It's, it's an important thing to keep in mind. And
1: and sorry, why, why do you think that is?
0: Well, I think when, when your family chooses to come to America, um, out of, Uh, Exceptional duress when they choose to leave behind their their relatives, their neighborhood, their neighbors, their church. uh, When they choose to leave all that behind, they don't choose that lightly. And when they come to America, then they come to the United States. It's it's seen as a privilege. And whether they're documented or undocumented, I, I think the thing all immigrants share is a profound sense of responsibility to each other, to their families and to their community to make the most of the opportunity that America represents. And this, by the way, is cuts across all ethnicities. If you look at the incredible success of of, um, many of the players in Silicon Valley, you know, many of them are immigrants. Many of them are first generation immigrants, uh, the sons of people who came to America. Um, If you look at the immense success of the Latino community, the community that is most entrepreneurial in the United States every year. Stanford does a study on entrepreneurship in America and their study year after year finds that Latinos are the most entrepreneurial people in the country right now. Not surprising. It's always whoever just showed up who's most entrepreneurial. Hmm. So, um, uh, so, uh, you know, it, it doesn't sur- surprise me that that's the case because I, I grew up with folks who are. um, working hard to figure out ways to make a living. And that's the nature of entrepreneurship. You create your own living.
1: Right. Got it. Okay. And uh, sorry to interrupt you there, but um, I guess going back to the the original question before that, which was kind of the ways, kind of how I put it, the pillars of support that allowed for you to, to thrive kind of as you exited the South Bronx.
0: I benefited from immense pillars of support and I think you know the idea that people make themselves as individuals is a um, is a is a, is one of those myths that actually isn't helpful um, you know I wrote a book about I, I haven't published it, and I, I probably won't um, it's too personal and too private but I wrote a book about how I navigated my way out of the south bronx and one of the central themes of that book was the importance of the support of others the extent to which community really mattered my mother who sacrificed immensely literally working night and day at a sewing machine to make sure that my brothers and i had the very basic things we needed to be able to go to school i will not want to get into the details but you can only imagine a world where some people don't get to go to school because they don't have the shoes on their feet it's still the case here in the united states it was certainly the case in the 1960s and 70s that's a kind of poverty that shouldn't exist she worked hard to make sure we had things to go to school the teachers who every day left their perfectly reasonable middle class abodes who could have taught in other places, yet came to the South Bronx to serve as teachers for for us. The um, aunts and uncles who um, checked in on us and sometimes took us in. If you think about what it takes to really make it out of that challenging situation, it really blows up the traditional Horatio Alger myth that is so um, embedded in the American psyche it doesn't take an extraordinary individual it takes an extraordinary community to make people mm-hmm. successful
1: right okay i mean that sounds like a pretty you know a, a very powerful story do you think that you may ever i guess the mindset might shift and you might might publish it at some point
0: uh, you know i i'm a very private person
1: <laughs> so uh, <laughs> so we'll see <laughs> right Right. Okay. Let's go into one of your quotes for a minute that I pulled from uh, the Alumni Society in which you said that when you grow up in an environment like that, you have a simple choice. You can either turn your back on the past and move on, or you can move on, but look but look back. And it's kind of what you're saying there is uh, when you move on, but look back, you're kind of drawing lessons from your past to help you progress into the future rather than kind of Rejecting your past and kind of moving on from it because it's maybe too dark and you maybe just don't want to remember it at all
0: So there are really Two things about that quote. It's funny that you mentioned it because it was so long ago. It's uh, It's a testament to your research that you you, you found that I would just <laughs> say this there, there are two things about it That I would take away and that I think people did take away from that quote because it's come back to me multiple times now the first thing I mean by making sure you look back is to make sure you look back so you can extend your hand back and help others pull themselves out it, too many people become successful and then move on you know the number one pick in yesterday's in the sorry the number one pick in the NFL draft this year um, said that one of the things he felt was most important about his having been picked first is it it puts him in a position to be even more helpful to the people in athens ohio where he's from it's evidently a challenged community in, in 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 ohio and he he felt his being picked number one was a blessing to him but also a blessing he wanted to share with his community he was looking back He wasn't just looking forward at the brilliance of his future as the number one pick in the NFL, someone Mm -hmm. who is going to be on the cover of magazines and and all the other things that come with being the number one pick. He was looking back and saying, I come from a place, I come from a place that I'm not going to forget. I come from a place that has given me strength, that has nurtured and guided me and made me the person I am today. And I... I'm going to make sure that as I move forward and look forward, that every once in a while I glance back and that I glance back with a hand extended so that others can reach for my hand and be pulled forward.
1: Interesting. So it's, it's, um, it's, it's kind of like both being of service to, to others and also, um, kind of as a method to kind of be fulfilled, if that makes sense.
0: You know, I would say that it's more than an issue of being fulfilled. Uh, I think it's a question of personal responsibility. I think even if it's not fulfilling, even if it's difficult, even if it's challenging, even if it would be easier to spend 100% of your resources, 100% of your energy, 100% of your mind space on yourself, that that's not a way to live your life, that in fact being a responsible citizen, being a responsible human, being a responsible person requires that you ask yourself, that you have the decency to ask yourself, how can I share what you have? You know, my mother used to, uh, every once in a while invite someone over for, um, for dinner we didn't always have enough dinner but she'd always invites every once in a while still invite someone who she felt really needed dinner that night and we might only have uh some rice and and some some um, lentils or something like that but she would share them it meant that all of us had 15 percent less but we could do with 15 percent less to allow somebody else to have 85 percent more and um you know there she was in about as difficult a situation as someone can be um yet she had the capacity the courage the the thoughtfulness uh, to look back and think you know i can make a difference in this person's life tonight when they need it might might not be able to again but tonight i can so tonight i will
1: right and uh, going deeper and kind of into kind of that sense of responsibility many people nowadays struggle with finding real purpose in their careers mm-hmm. and due to perhaps maybe the harsh reality of your upbringing and youth would you say that your own sense of responsibility and purpose as it related to your jobs was clear to you uh, early on
0: so let's talk about the issue of purpose in career okay I think it's important for people to think about purpose in life not just purpose and career. If you step back and think about your career as part of a portfolio of your day-to-day activities, it doesn't put so much pressure on your career having purpose because it may be that your career is a vehicle that allows you to give purpose in other parts, if you find purpose in other parts of your life. It may be that your career gives you the capacity To help your father, who is an air conditioner repairman, this is a true story that a friend of mine um, lived, to have that father not be an air conditioner repairman in the Rio Grande Valley, which has him in hot crawl spaces in his 40s and 50s and puts him at real risk. He, because he did a career that generated large surplus for him, was able to take some of that surplus and take his father out of those high- crawl spaces and put him in a wonderful house in Arizona. Boy, that's real purpose now, isn't it, mm-hmm. right? right. Uh, it, it might be that, um, that you're helping a theater company. It might be that you're helping a soup kitchen. It might be that you're putting some kids through parochial school. It might be that you're doing all of those things, but you can find purpose in your career in your career you can find purpose in your career in what your career allows you to do and so the idea that every aspect of your life has to meet every element of need is something that i really when i speak to college students really try to dissuade them from thinking what i tell them is what you're managing isn't a career isn't a relationship isn't a place to live isn't a degree what you're managing is a life And it is that life that has to meet all the needs. It may be that some elements of that life are more instrumental, uh, allowing you purpose in other places or satisfaction in other places, or give you some satisfactions, but not every satisfaction you need. I I see all the time resumes of of young people early in their careers. And I'm shocked by how much they move around and they're Mm -hmm. not moving around because they're moving up. They're moving around because they're finding that that specific moment isn't meeting all their needs. And what I tell them is no, persist through periods of, of uh, dissatisfaction because you'll find satisfaction on the other side of them or stop expecting that job or that relationship or that activity to meet every one of your needs. Ask yourself, how can I have that need met, need met in other places?
1: Right. And do you think that this almost instant gratification culture is, I guess, perpetuating college students or recent graduates nowadays to hop jobs more often than they probably should?
0: You know, I have incredible respect for this generation of people coming up. They are... I think they have the opportunity to be one of the great generations. They, they, you know, were born in the crisis of 2000, 2001. They um, entered their sentient years in the crisis of 08, 09, and on. They uh, enter early adulthood in this pandemic. It is astonishing what today's 22-year-old has lived through. Um, if you think of the generation that is, you know, 15 to 35 now, that is a generation equipped with, uh, with a real sense of responsibility for changing things, because they have lived through three of the worst crises, um, social crises, economic crises, now a health crisis that this country has seen, the Great Recession, the worst recession since the Great Depression, this pandemic, the worst pandemic since the flu of 1918. Um, they've lived through the, the, the so-called global war on terror, which has is, which is, you know, changed the nature of our lives day to day. This is a group of people who have a sense of uh, resilience, a sense of mission, and a sense of dedication that I don't think we've seen since after since the group that emerged from the Great Depression and World War II, and I am really looking forward to being in their hands. Uh, Twenty years from now, when I'm too old um, to be running around the way I do now, my my knees remind me of that every morning. Um, <laughs> I, I I I am going to be in the hands of. young women and young men who right now are 15 to 35 and are going to be at the peak of their careers and i think i'm going to be in just spectacular hands because these people have already lived through more than most generations
1: got it so do you not think that the like instant gratification culture is is bad in any way
0: Well, I don't think that the young people of today have an instant gratification culture. I think if you look at them and you look at how they're graduating from college, if you look at them and how they're graduating from high school, if that's what they can do, if you look at them and look at their um, out-of-wedlock pregnancy rates, if you look at them and look at their statistics for drug use, this is one of the finest generations this country has ever produced. These are people who are clean living hardworking and highly educated. Um, If you think about markers for what their future will look like and you take those socioeconomic indicators, those educational indicators, this is a generation that is equipping itself to make a real difference.
1: Right. Okay.
0: I hope you don't mind my disagreeing with your question. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's okay, but I have enormous respect. I have enormous respect for the generation of people who are coming up right now. This group that is just finishing high school through the late stages of the beginning of their careers at 15 to 35 group, I have high, high hopes. And by the way, they've changed the dialogue in the country. The protests they led around Occupy, um, the demands they're making around equity and the current stimulus. Um, we are getting different outcomes, different conversations and different dialogues because of the leadership already of this generation that's coming up.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. And so you're used
0: to getting non counterintuitive answers. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes, this, this is a, this that's true okay and then so but you
0: know but you know the facts are on my side it's just the case mm-hmm. that, that they look for more education that they self-destructive behaviors are lower that they're more politically engaged and active
1: mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: it's just a case that this is a better generation
1: than right
0: some of the generations we've seen
1: and so for you did you feel a strong sense of responsibility and purpose while at mckinsey yeah. Um, or was that kind of it, like, like you said, that Rollit McKenzie was also a a vehicle to drive, I guess, purpose through other areas of your life.
0: So you know, when I
1: um, was
0: talking to people about joining the Ford Foundation, they said, you know, what's interesting about your resume is the second page. So what do you mean, the second page? So on the second page, you have a full roster of nonprofit activities, your roster of nonprofit activities rivals those of some people who spend their time in the nonprofit sector Um, in Boston, in in San Francisco and other parts of the country. You've spent large amounts of time dedicated to making real changes in the nonprofit space. You know, McKinsey, you know, and this is the McKinsey of 15 or 20 years ago. I, I can't speak to the firm today. Um, But McKinsey afforded me the opportunity to have a a terrific career in business, a career that made a huge difference, a career that uh, began at the beginning of the internet and took me through the internet we know now with uh, driven by video and high bandwidth applications, Um, vast global uh, interconnectivity in a way that was, was unimaginable decades ago that basically connected everyone in one way or another. Uh, Even the smallest village in Kenya now has one smartphone that, that lets them connect in unique ways. Um, McKinsey did all that, but it also gave me the space to do real work, real nonprofit work beginning at an early age um, in my mid twenties through um, when I left 20 years later. I was constantly involved in difference-making nonprofit work. And we didn't do it on a discounted fee basis. We did it for free. It was pro bono work done for the good of the communities we lived in. And uh, uh, I was uh, proud of that work, and that work came back to really benefit me when I had the opportunity to work at Ford.
1: Got it. Okay. And you mentioned this. Uh, I think briefly a little or a little bit before, but would your advice, would your advice to give, I guess, recent graduates who are maybe struggling to find purpose in their job or career to not really focus much on trying to find that job that will fulfill them uh, with a lot of purpose, but, but instead use it as a vehicle to help them find other ways to find purpose in their life.
0: What I would suggest to young graduates, to people early in their careers, is that they think carefully about the portfolio of activities they're pursuing and ask themselves whether or not. Um, The solution isn't in the portfolio as opposed to in one specific aspect of the portfolio and by the way It's good practice because you're gonna have to find develop the same skills in a marriage and in a friendship and in in a family That at the end of the day um, Not everyone or every job or every community um, Is going to meet all your needs and that um, you should look at your situation and ask yourself what's right about it and enjoy those things and appreciate those things. Look at the, your situations and ask yourself, what is it about it that isn't meeting all my needs? And then ask, not how can that situation meet all my needs, but how can I find those needs met across the elements of my existence, across everything I'm doing? It might be that the job isn't for you but don't think that the job isn't for you because it doesn't meet all your needs because you're never going to find that job.
1: Right. Yeah. I think that makes sense. I guess bringing this back to the name of the podcast, which is the driving force podcast, would you say that your sense of responsibility is your driving force?
0: You know, it absolutely is. I um, was joking with a friend of mine. He and I were killing ourselves. We were on a flight back from Mexico City. We were gonna land in one place, then switch onto airplanes and each go to another place for another set of meetings. And I said, you know, we're both pushing 60. We're both in our late 50s. What is it about um, us that has us running around this hard when we could easily be, you know, retired in, you know, some glamorous place um, or at the very least, not working quite this hard. And he said, you know, Louise, you, you you ask that question every once in a while, and I always shake my head, and I think, you and I, we're not made for anything else. You know that every hour of every day that we can devote to activities means those activities are going to be a little bit better. You know mm-hmm. that whether it's a theater or a, A homeless shelter or um whatever it might be or a company that a little effort by you and a little effort by me can make a big difference in the outcome of those organizations and you know you're not going to sit around sipping red wine looking out over the mediterranean when you can make that kind of a difference
1: right and do you take do you take time to i guess acknowledge your accomplishments
0: You know, uh, when you think about accomplishments, it's it's a funny question. And uh, I always think that the the only real accomplishment I've ever had in my life is raising two really amazing sons. And I look at those two guys and I think, wow, I've been really lucky. Um, And, uh, you know, someday when I can't be running around so much, I'll be able to sit across a table and look at them and think. You know, I got a lot done, but you two guys, you two guys are the most important thing I got
1: done. Mm -hmm. Right. And I guess uh, the reason I asked that question is um, a lot of times people who, you know, are very ultra successful um, and kind of hard charging type A personalities that are seemingly just constantly working. They don't, they don't take time to kind of take a step back and, and acknowledge Kind of all that they have and all that they've done, and that can kind of that that can lead to to burnout and and unhappiness. So that's that's what was kind of driving that question.
0: You know, you're on you're on a very important question, which is, uh, and this is another thing that I often tell folks who are mentoring and advising, which is they need to understand uh, the goodness of what they've done, because if you don't hold the goodness of what you've done, your accomplishments, the difference you've made, the contributions you've made, then your subconscious won't be filled with that impetus that lo and behold, sitting there and thinking, oh, today there are 12 kids who instead of going to a very bad school or, or going to a very good parochial school in their community, or, or there are these meals being provided at this place because of something I did, or... Uh, This company is thriving instead of out of business because of work I did but if you don't step back and Take note of the impact of what you've done That you will be losing that energy that you won't have The same kind of force propelling you toward doing that again or doing something like it or taking a chance and doing something new is you won't have that embedded sense that the hundred other times you tried something in those hundred times, the vast majority of them, something pretty good did in fact happen. And that that pretty good thing made people's lives a little bit better. And um, so, I, so I think it's pivotal that people step back and say, I graduated from high school today. My, um, I, I'm in the Southwest and my father was undocumented and worked in in the field, and today I graduated from high school. You know, I spoke to a high school graduation in the Rio Grande Valley, and I told them, just stop for a minute and breathe the air. It was an outdoor ceremony. Breathe the air around you, because I want you to remember. I want you to remember the moment of this accomplishment. How many of you here, I asked, how many of you here have parents who didn't graduate from high school? Uh, I knew the answer to the question almost everyone raised their hands you, some parents were at this point crying and I said you have done something all of you with your hands raised effectively all of you that hasn't been done in your family before in many cases I want you to take notice because I want you to take the energy of the pride you feel right now and carry it forward into your jobs if that's what you're going to do after graduation or into college if that's if that's what's coming next. So I think it's really important for people to gather in the energy from accomplishment, not for self satisfaction, but for motivation.
1: Yeah, I would, I would agree with all of that. Shifting gears here a little, uh, walk me through the period of transition from McKinsey to the Ford Foundation and how you ultimately got the role as president of uh, of the Ford Foundation.
0: Well, you know, there wasn't much of a period of transition. On Friday, I finished. Uh, well, I wasn't even finished. On Friday, I, I left McKinsey with more things to do. And on the following Monday, I arrived at the Ford Foundation. You know, I took the Ford Foundation job in, in 2007. By uh, March of 2008, um, just months later, Bear Stearns went under. And it was clear we were in a period of profound crisis and my job at Ford at that point changed dramatically. It wasn't, it was no longer the job of steering the organization in, in a status quo way, in a way that built on the immense glory and success of the institution. It was a job uh, centered on um, helping the organization make it through the great recession as, you know, intact and as strong as possible. It became a very, very, very different mission, and it required myriad, myriad hard decisions.
1: Got it. And was that, was the Great Recession kind of the, the driving force behind the significant restructuring that you led during your time there?
0: So I always joke with people that, that no one um, hires me or engages with me or asks me to advise them or join their board because they don't have substantive questions. Um, and I, I think Ford was the same way. I think Ford had substantive questions about the nature of, of what it was going to be in the decades to come. And uh, I had planned a, a slow accumulation of change to guide it toward that future. The Great Recession forced those changes much faster. Um, uh, we um, the central change was a change to program the idea that we couldn't just participate in many hundreds of things we had to lead in a much smaller number of things And, and that required moving from more than 200 you know very small activities in most cases to a few dozen activities where we could shape outcomes where we could be significant donors where we could provide more than just money but leadership, time, attention, and energy, where we could help with and shape the communication and the convening. It was a different way of working. The model moved from incredibly talented, gifted, and brilliant program officers operating um, under their own designed programs to um, those same very gifted people working together uh, uh, on specific institutional goals. You know, that was a seminal change, but it's the kind of change that these times require because problems now require a scale of resources that are that are hard to come by. Um, There were other things uh, changing the the telecommunications and communications infrastructure so that we could all work together, see each other, communicate with each other, find ways to be um, uh, more collaborative and collegial through the use of technology. There's the renovation of offices, which were um, spectacular, but in many ways, legacies, and there were many, many other operating changes. Uh, We reinvested the endowment, 82% of the endowment was reinvested. In that process, we took performance from um, bottom quartile to top quartile. All of that happened. But the most important thing we did was shift the paradigm of our programs from Uh, many things done very well, but not at scale, to fewer things done equally well, but at scale. You know, Mm -hmm. there's one other big change. When I first arrived at the Ford Foundation, we talked a lot about, I talked a lot about social justice. And there was some hesitance to, uh, Take that phrase, you know, justicia social, as it is said in Spanish and, and everything that that means in Latin America and Central America. It's funny how words um, matter, because today, just a few years after we began the dialogue about social justice and its meaning and its, what the phrase meant, it is literally on the front of the building the Ford Foundation Center for Social Justice, I was reminded recently by a good friend of mine, Anthony Romero, that those were words that were important, but not really uttered in New York and other places, and that now it's a catchphrase, and that, you know, some of that, some of that began when we began that first dialogue about um, social justice as an organizing philosophy for the institution.
1: Right. And how do you define social justice?
0: You know, it's, uh, there's so many wonderful definitions, and there's so many people so infinitely smarter than, than me who have spent decades talking about social justice. I, I keep a much, much simpler um, definition in my heart. I ask myself, what does social justice mean? It means that the person worst off in our society still has decency in their life.
1: Got it. And as it relates to lessening the amount of initiatives the foundation was, was engaged in, at a high level, how did you go about deciding which initiatives were worth focusing the foundation's resources towards and which were not?
0: You know, I always begin with the notion that um, the collective knows more than the individual. It's a theme in all of my answers. And so um, I began a distributed process. I said to everyone, the thing I can uh, guide you towards is the notion that we have to begin to operate at scale. The thing we need to figure out together is how we do that. And we launched an extensive, a six month process. To identify across everything we did the things that mattered most within the social justice framework. And that led to countless hard decisions, spectacular work that ju- we just couldn't do anymore if we were going to operate at scale. Right. Pain- hard, painful decisions. And at the end, that collective process, which included speaking to more than 4,000 social justice, uh, cultural, nonprofit leaders um, in The united states and and internationally that process uh yielded um yielded the change i'd love to tell you that i i led that process i would say i initiated that process and that the process in fact was led by the brilliant people um who populated the program staff at the ford foundation and out of those people emerged the priorities the at scale priorities and the funny thing about it was at the end everyone everyone wanted even more resources for those the argument i i had most with people was they're saying but luis we need even more for this specific initiative and i would say but but that would mean we have to do even even fewer of them and mm-hmm. it was that uh, incredible cultural transformation from being asked um, but we need all 200 30 some odd of these to being told we need to focus even more that was uh that was one of those special moments
1: interesting okay and how did you ensure that the ford foundation um, actually made real change happen versus write large checks or grants
0: you know making real change happen is uh astonishingly hard Because a change doesn't happen in months, change takes years and decades, Um, and change is slow and change is incremental in the United States. in Some places they have revolutionary change. They change regimes and go from dictatorship to democracy. Uh, They change economic models and go from an economy that resembles communism to a planned economy that resembles uh, capitalism. In the united states it, and in many many places where where we were doing work at ford change happens in a different way it happens through the slow accumulation of consensus all the time i tell um my sons about something that i think is happening too fast and i tell them the issue is that there hasn't yet been consensus developed that there hasn't yet been um a moment where we can all say, yes, we need a different frame um, for that. And uh, the beauty of the situation at Ford is that um, it's, uh, it's the kind of place that has the patience to be persistent. And it is in that yeah. persistence that change happens. It's in that persistence that we can achieve things like gay marriage. It's in that persistence that we can do things like and um, uh, forced marriage for, for, for young women, for children, really. It's in that pers- persistence that, that we can move um, from today's hatred of, of immigrants to tomorrow's understanding that the future of the country um, is interwoven with the emergence of new populations, bringing us a kind of energy that very few other countries benefit from.
1: Right. And so looking back on your time there, what would you say you're most proud of?
0: I think the thing I'm most proud of is uh, the work we did in, uh, well, let me just step back actually. That's a much harder question than meet CI. Um, there, there are countless things I'm most proud of, uh, countless things. If I were forced to pick out one single thing, it was the work we did in gay marriage. I would, um, I would stand in front of crowds and say, who gave government the right to distinguish between my children? I'd say, well, they'd look at me quizzically and I'd say, let me explain what I mean. My, both my sons happen to be straight. They'll both, God willing, uh, grow up and find someone they love. And because of who they are, those people will be women. And go- the government will shower benefits on them because of that. The government will make inheritance easier for, 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 for them or for whomever survives them. The government will make it easier for them to be seen at a hospital. The government will make it, easier for, will make it possible for their Social Security benefits to be transferred to their spouse somehow somehow we think that the government has the right to take all those privileges all those rights all those benefits away if my sons had instead been born lgbt Mm -hmm. lgbtq and that doesn't seem right to me and the audience would be stunned because of course what i had just made was an incredibly conservative argument for why it was that, uh, of course, the government shouldn't distinguish between its people on the issue of marriage. And, um, you know, we won that. Uh, uh, that leader of that movement once said to me, you know, Luis, I came into your office and I said, we needed some extra money to get this over, over the last hurdle. And that we were just flat out at that point. And we tapped everyone else and you went into your reserve funds and you gave us within days, $3 million. And those $3 million are what put us over the edge. I don't know if that was true or not, but I have to tell you the idea that now every child who's born is seen equally by government. that Whether that child, that boy or that girl is straight or gay or whatever she he might be, um, the government isn't gonna distinguish what rights they get is a seminal victory for this country
1: right and so how i guess how long was that i guess project for lack of a better term um end to end end to end while you were there
0: you know one of the hardest things i did was in fact start that that lgbt program it's you know it's not a topic a lot of people want to pursue unfortunately and it endured from soon after I arrived as central part of central outcome in the strategy to, uh, to when I left and and it changed oh, wow. after I left.
1: Okay. Talk to me about the large role that art has played in your life.
0: You know, it's, uh, it's funny you ask me about art. Not too many people understand the role art plays in my life. How on earth did you hear about my, my interest in art?
1: Uh, research <laughs>
0: <laughs> you do your research extremely well. you know <laughs> thanks. Um, we have to remember uh, that um, art is transportive. and by the way, when we talk about art, art is visual. Art has movement like in ballet, art has sound. Art has all the senses. it's you know people think of art, as a painting on a wall, but it's important to understand art as all those things that come out of creativity that move you, shake you, and uh, sometimes make you annoyed and and sometimes make you excited. Um, You know, art is in, you know, many things and in many places. And if you pay close attention and you traverse New York, like where I live or, or other, almost any place, you can see art around you. You can see it in uh, sidewalk crayon drawings and in musicians at the entrance to the subway, um, on walls, um, in the form of, of, uh, organized or disorganized graffiti, it, there's art all around you. And I, 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 sometimes go around and walk with people and and just start pointing out all the art that we're passing ambiently. And, uh, before they get annoyed, they always tell me, boy, you, you, are seeing a city that I'm not always uh, aware of. And I said, well, I want you to pay attention to this because you'll bring it into the rest of your life. Um, So the reason art plays such an important part of my life is because of the role it played when I was a boy. Um, You know, the first grand palaces I ever entered, the first places where I realized what amazing really was, how rich this country was in, in ideas and in spaces was through art. I got taken to the Museum of Natural History. I got taken to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. I got taken, allowed to go to the opera. These were gifts of unimaginable power to me because I could see what the ceiling looked like. I could see that Mm -hmm. um, my aspirations could be in the crystal of those lights rising into the ceiling of the Metropolitan Opera. There's this documentary about Jean-Michel Basquiat, the the artist we lost uh, many years ago, um, who uh, was a street artist to begin with and came from an immigrant family. And um, they talk about in that documentary Uh, How his mother would take him to museums and how his lesson from those museums was, oh, I can be an artist. I can create, I can invent, I can make, I can create a new dialogue. I can redefine what it means to be someone like me. And, um, you know, it's an astonishing thing what it's like, what it is to take someone who's um, existence is in the South Bronx and um, whose window looks on that narrow landscape and have that person walk into a museum and understand that this moment stretches back to the first painters to the first carvers of, hy- of glyphs into some future that is as yet undetermined it's an incredible powerful thing that art does
1: right it, it, it sounds like it just it was almost like that those, one of those first moments for you that kind of opened your mind up to all the possibilities that could be in your future.
0: Yeah, I know. I think it did that for me, but I think it does that for a lot of people. I think whether you're growing up in a very comfortable suburban house and walk to school and, um, your world is, you know, a narrow, but incredibly comfortable world, or your world is the opposite of that in a place like the South Bronx. Uh, and not so comfortable, but equally also narrow. I think what art can do for all of us, no matter what our level of privilege is, um, is help us understand the. The continuous evolution of ideas and and how they're still evolving and how there really is no limit to what you can do or invent or think
1: Right. And do you see art as maybe a way to spur social, social change?
0: You know, art has always been, um, a vehicle for social change. You know, the images you see, the dance you experience, all, uh, shape who you are. Um, you know, when those first plays came out about the AIDS crisis. There's a whole generation of plays. Uh, the one people know mo- most is, um, of course, angels in America. They humanized, um, the disease in a way that I think allowed the typical audience in a theater, mostly made up of well-off people from the suburbs, um, to begin to see the humanity of the tragedy. And, um, Recently, many of those plays reopened in New York, and my wife and I made a point of seeing them all. It was a very emotional experience for both of us because we remembered that, in fact, our society had to be reminded that those young men, mostly young men, who were dying, were uh, the same young men who were their neighbors and their sons and their nephews, and, and that just as they'd show compassion, To those people, they may want to show compassion um, to those strangers who were suffering. And those plays, I think, played a a central role in the transformation that happened in understanding AIDS as a a disease that belonged to all of us.
1: Interesting. And what about technology as it relates to social change? I think, if I remember correctly, uh, in a speech that you gave while you were still at the ford foundation how with the arab spring and how that grew through the use of you know facebook and social media um, as being a really big example of how technology can can drive social change what maybe other forms of technology do you see as being maybe particularly promising as it relates to uh maybe it's application towards social change
0: it it used to be on this issue of technology driving social change, that our interactions were intermediated. That if you wanted to see news, it had to pass through someone like Katie Couric, Um, that if you wanted to print something, it had to pass through um, uh, the New Orleans Times, Picayune, uh, and so on. Technology has democratized communication, publication, video distribution in a way that makes social change profoundly different. You know, if I'm sitting in a room in the South and I want to understand, um, um, the incredible contributions that someone who's, um, that African-Americans have made to our society, I no longer have to wait for it to appear in the state mandated textbook. I might not have to wait forever for it to appear in that textbook or in the school curriculum. I can now find that information myself. If, I'm, um, if, I, right. want to, uh, if I want to um, find out about birth control, I don't have to wait for my abstinence-only curriculum to um, die of its own weight, I can create my own curriculum online and understand Um, how I can keep myself safe and protected. We have moved from an era of intermediation and uh, control uh, to an era of um, exploration and self-definition of multilateral communication in a way that's incredibly powerful. We don't yet know how to make the best use of it. So we get bad players like Facebook and they do damage to us. Um, but over time, as with all innovations, we'll figure out how to, um, provide appropriate guideposts that keep the freedom of what we have, but also guide toward better behavior.
1: Interesting. And how do you think about innovation as it relates to large foundations and nonprofits? Like, do you think maybe theoretical, or I don't know if this is true, that the large foundations and nonprofits partner with like the large tech corporations, say Google or an Apple or Facebook to find ways to innovate.
0: I, I don't think change is possible in a world as complicated as ours without collaboration. Um, if you think about, um, any sector, not just, the philanthropic sector or the nonprofit sector, it's just impossible now. Uh, it can't, things have gotten too complicated and too interwoven to think that you can go it alone. This is an easy thought for me to hold, because it's a basic belief in, of mine that if we work communally, communally, if we work in partnership, if we work together, we'll get a better outcome than if we work on an isolated basis. But it's not just my bias. I think it's the reality of the time. I think that's one of the things that makes young people today so powerful. It's that they understand the interconnectedness that is required by today's problems they understand that um if they're going to have a peaceful protest on the issue of inequality that that if they collaborate with peers in the capitals of all the g20 and have those peers lay in front of the parliaments at the same moment at 12:03 p.m that that action not so hard to organize with collaboration tools um Uh, will have a different message than if they just on an isolated basis do it at their state capital or in Washington, D.C. I think uh, whether it's uh, a philanthropy or a nonprofit or a business or an individual, solutions today require that we hold hands and walk forward together.
1: Right. And do you think that technology and technological innovation can aid in the argument that economic growth and social inclusion are actually mutually reinforcing.
0: So I've traveled all over the world um, over uh, you know, decades, um, and uh, I have to say that economic growth and so- economic growth is one of the most powerful levers in social inclusion. If you think about um, the rights of women uh, and whether women um, have 10 children and uh, in ways that are exceptionally debilitating or a number that's more managed by them and more in keeping with their individual needs as societies um, uh, improve economically um, those birth rates come down and women have more choice if you think about um, education, the capacity to read, and the profundity of uh, the skill of reading in your ability to be a citizen and to hold your rights. Um, it's uh, uh, an astonishing thing One societies can afford to teach everyone. I, I think we have been caught in a false paradigm. We've been caught in a, in a paradigm that says uh, social justice and economic growth um are opposing notions and ideas and that's a real tragedy because what we know and what we've experienced is that it is in fact economic growth appropriately shared that drives um reduction in inequality that um societies where people were going hungry by the hundreds of millions have in our lifetimes been lifted out of that monumental oppression. Uh, that societies where women had almost no rights, weren't being educated, were forced into childbearing situations that weren't of their choosing, were getting married off at ages that were inappropriate and, 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 and just evil, that all of those things begin to alleviate themselves as societies grow economically, and find ways to ensure that the benefits of that growth are appropriately shared, not in extreme ways, but in thoughtful ways.
1: Okay, interesting. But how does, how does this widening income inequality gap factor, factor in there?
0: You know, sorry, you've seen over the last uh, five years a real migration on the question of income inequality first it became a topic we forget that just a few years ago income inequality wasn't something that was commonly talked about it wasn't you know in the paper it wasn't at the dinner table and then it became an issue that a few people who were wealthy billionaires began to talk about and then there became to be a movement not just of young people Uh, protesting in squares but if even wealthy people who are asking the question how much is enough how much should be shared Um, how much should I be taxed and much to my amazement movements of exceptionally wealthy people asking that they be taxed more for the collective benefit and stability of the nation have emerged in the United States and in other places not radical questions that 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 begin to question whether or not we should have wealth but people sensibly asking the question given that we have wealth how do we share it so that we can ensure that that wealth that that wealth it can be enjoyed in a stable country an ethical country a country that has social justice so that the person worst off in that country at least has the opportunity to live a decent life, at least has the opportunity to educate their children, to have basic food, basic housing, basic health care. When even the wealthiest begin to ask those questions, we are on the right path. Mm -hmm. It's America. It'll take time. Things happen here incrementally. But I think uh, what this current generation of young people have done to bring that dialogue not just to the dinner tables but to the mouths of our wealthiest is an incredible thing
1: interesting and uh i guess lastly to to wrap up here what uh what areas within this social change or maybe even human welfare bubble do you see significant opportunity for progress during the current pandemic situation
0: We for years have been engaged in a dialogue about public health. When I was a little boy, a public health officer would arrive in our community, uh, in the projects in the Bronx, and uh, notices would go out and children would be brought in and they'd be vaccinated and protected from all manner of disease because of it. We'd have our basic health checked and our eyes checked. Think about how far we've come. That doesn't exist at all anymore. i'm not suggesting that as a solution but i think coming out of this pandemic we've got to ask ourselves can we really live in a society where some people don't have access to health care knowing that we're going to be in a car with that person on a subway with that person maybe that's the person who puts our groceries in a bag or or who puts the plate of food in front of us at the restaurant do we, can we do we really want to live in a country where large numbers of the people who we come into contact with every minute of every day, um, in our quotidian activities, um, isn't healthy, isn't, um, being checked, isn't having checkups, doesn't have access to basic healthcare. If this pandemic teaches us anything, it's that, um, none of us are safe from a health point of view, unless, all of us have some minimum amount of of health have healthcare access and um my hope is that that lesson won't be lost when um the veil lifts and uh we're all inoculated and it's a year from now and uh baseball games are being played that we remember a year from now when when this is just a terrible memory that the person sitting next to us had better have health care is if they don't have health care, we might be the ones on ventilators.
1: Right. Yeah. I think that's uh, I think it's a good place to, to end here. Uh, Luis, thanks again for coming on the show. Uh, I really appreciate it.
0: It's my pleasure. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to have, have this conversation with you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And thanks to all of you uh, who are listening, and we'll see you next time.